Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights Podcast. We have a tremendous show for you today. Our guest is Scott Thompson. Scott is a former football player at the Citadel, a Hall of Famer, Citadel Hall of Famer, who then had a brief stint with the Atlanta Falcons before transitioning into the business world where he's had a long, successful career, started and sold multiple companies, and is also the brother of Lance Thompson, a longtime SEC assistant coach who is currently the linebackers coach at Maryland under Mike Loxley. We talked a lot about his career, what it was like being in an NFL training camp, his business career, being the brother of an SEC head coach, and a whole lot more. Super sharp guy. I really think you'll enjoy this conversation. Appreciate his time. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a quick break to remind you. The podcast is now brought to you by Seaspire, a new partnership with the Rippy Rights Podcast. Thrilled to bring Seaspire on board. The way businesses collaborate is changing. Seaspire Voice with WebEx gives your organization the tools to stay ahead. Call, meet, and message on any device, anywhere from one secure cloud-based platform. The last few years have shown just how vital remote is remote work is for businesses of all sizes. But you also want to protect your organization from cyber threats. That's why Seaspire Voice with WebEx has enterprise-grade security built from the ground up. So you can enhance how your teams work together in and out of the office, all with the reliability and scalability that traditional business phone systems just can't offer. Learn more at C- about what Seaspire Voice with WebEx can do for your organization at cspire.com slash businesses. Seaspire, customer inspired. Also, check out their home internet. I have their home fiber internet. It's 2023. You can't be going with bad internet. I do the podcast with Seaspire internet. If it went in and out all the time and was not reliable, this wouldn't be a very good podcast. But thanks to Seaspire, I never have that problem. It is the most reliable internet on the market. Should there an issue arise, they'll have a technician come out to your home within 24 hours. But it is the most reliable and stable internet on the market. Check them out. Seaspire customer inspired. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. That's right. Rent the Sip Oxford. Good friend of the podcast, Bracken Ray. His Turnberry unit located less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus can be your place to stay, whether you're passing through Oxford, whether it's a big game weekend, whether you're there for move-in, orientation, rush. It can be tough to find a place to stay in Oxford, particularly on bigger weekends. Rent the Sips Oxford's Turnberry unit has you covered, though. It will Sleep eight comfortably. It's got amenities such as a pool, sauna, and tennis courts. It's gated. It's great for games, orientation, rush, parents weekend. Still availability for the Mercer, ULM, Vanderbilt football weekend. Still available for orientation. Still available during throughout rush week and still available for moving week. And hey, maybe you just don't want to deal with the hotel and you're passing through Oxford for a night or two randomly. You need to check it out at rentthesipoxford.com. You can go online, check availability. If you listen to this podcast, you can get the Rippy Rights discount. That's 100 bucks off any two-night stay minimum. So go online, book your stay, type in Rippy Rights, and you'll get 100 bucks off a two-night minimum stay. It's a great place to stay, less than a mile from campus, straight shot to Swayze Field, almost a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway, and, of course, walkable from the Grove as well. Need to check them out just there off Taylor Road, rentthesipoxford.com. If you have any questions, feel free to email Bracken, B-R-A, a-C-K-E-N at rentthesipoxford.com. Book your stay before they fill up because football season's coming up and they will be filling up fast. So that is once again, rentthesipoxford.com. 
And I don't say this often enough, but a huge thanks to all of our sponsors. You people out there listening, please use our sponsors. It's what's make the show go. Thanks again for the partnership from all of them. Here is Scott Thompson. All right. We now welcome on Citadel Football Hall of Famer, Atlanta-based businessman, Scott Thompson. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. My boss, Rob Vincent, at my day job has been talking about how I should get the great Scott Thompson on for a long time. He finally got it set up, and I'm uh, I'm very glad you're here. How are you? I'm doing good, Brian. It's nice to meet you. Congratulations I- on the podcast. <laughs> I I appreciate that. It uh it really doesn't take much. If you got 45 minutes to set up a couple RSS feeds and a SoundCloud account, but it's uh it's been good. We've set up a nice little thing here and I know we were talking yesterday about kind of how this would work and it's uh it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it and I appreciate you joining the show. We'll start there. So, I know you're based out of Atlanta now. One of the of the many things we talked about yesterday, I didn't actually ask where you're originally from. Are you from Atlanta originally? Where are you originally based out of? From a suburb just south of Atlanta. Yeah, Clayton County, Fayette County. So okay. we, we refer to it as Atlanta-based, yeah. So, and just to give the listeners a little bit of a preview, you played football at the Citadel. You transitioned out of that post-college. And I would honestly say the NCAA should make a commercial about you as the model student athlete goes to play college football and then turns himself into a successful person. What do they call it? Uh, off the field, off the court. They love to throw those stats out in the commercial. They should make a commercial about you, honestly. Has anyone reached out? You know, that's funny. I I, I would I would put forth some of my classmates as an example. It's, it, you bring that up and it it brings chill bumps to me because this weekend I was back in Charleston with 15 of my former teammates. And we have this picture of us in our graduate in our uniforms, football uniforms, and our grad graduating uh, for our, I guess it was for the programs. And when you go across those guys, this is what you have. Four-star general, ran special operations, just retired June 1st. Orthopedic surgeon, two civil engineers, small businessman on the West Coast, sold just sold his business two years ago for X hundred million dollars. I'm a laggard in that group. My brother, I would say a pretty successful college football coach. We can argue, uh, you know, some of the color on that. Medtronics, um, striker, orthopedics. I mean, home builder, staggering. Uh, you know, I'm just so proud of that. I would take our whole class. I'd stack it against Stanford, to be honest with you. I dare him to pick. I dare him to pick a graduating team and see the results of our our team and our classmates. But yeah, we've had some success, and I do think what well, maybe we'll get to it in a minute. But I think the NCAA should emphasize that some more. Um, and and I and I think they're going to. I think the night that we were just talking about the night report, the night commission report, and man, I think they're going to put the pressure on them to do more of that. And so, how did you end up at the Citadel? Take me through kind of your high school football career the option to play college football. I know the Citadel, obviously it's a, it, Ole Miss had played them a few years ago, but it's one of those ones where I always like to describe is like, I knew a couple of friends that were pretty good high school football players. They had options to kind of play, I would say smaller school. They're certainly not at the level of the Citadel, but maybe D2 type stuff or become a regular college student and, you know, out with all that goes, did you have to balance that at all? Take me through how you got to the Citadel. Yeah, you know, I have an older brother, Lance. We'll get to him in a minute. 18 months older, one grade school, one grade in, in high school. He graduated. He went to West Point. Uh, our dad was in the military for a brief period. We had some teachers and coaches who had a relationship there. They kind of thought we were the, the right fit, right? You know, just deficient in athletics, but okay in academics. 
to go to the academy. So we focused on West Point early. Um, and I was actually three weeks before I left and I was going to bring my, both of our appointments to West Point. It was the thing my dad had hanging in the, just inside his house before he passed away. But uh, we were both going to be West Pointers. And my older brother actually changed our mind and said, hey, let's go to that military school down in South Carolina. Our parents will get to see us play more. Um, so we opted to he transferred and I went to uh, the went to the Citadel with him. So we came in as freshmen together. We graduated together. We went to graduate school together and played football together. That's how we ended up at the Citadel. Did you always know you wanted to play college football, given the opportunity? You know, we're like so many kids, right? We didn't have a lot of direction. None of our parents, nobody in our family had ever graduated from college. Our dad played football at Cedartown, a pretty successful football program there, played in the state championship. But um, we just didn't have a lot of guidance back then. Recruiting was not what it is today. I remember I went to Georgia on a recruiting visit. I went to Georgia Tech on a recruiting visit. But it just did, you know, you, it wasn't as uh, mature as it is today. So we didn't get the looks that everybody gets today. I, I, I was certainly not that level of player. I was a late bloomer without question, but I was a football player and a wrestler in high school. I went to the Citadel, I played football and I wrestled. Um, but focus was football. And, um, you know, really glad we did it. At the end of the day, it's turned out to work out great. We have great relationships and uh, it was a good education. It was a good personal development transformation from a, you know, just a poor, dumb country boy, you know, into whatever we became. I'm not sure we're much more than that now. But anyway, it's been a great run and uh, I would highly recommend it. Certain kids really need it. Other kids, it's good. It's good for everybody, but certain kids really need it. And uh, the Citadel is a great place. You mentioned the West Point aspect of it, particularly when Lance was going through and he transferred to the Citadel. I probably should have looked this up beforehand, but I, one of the things I thought of when you said that was, so I have a, a distant cousin that did the West Point thing. He was not an athlete, but he was a small town kid from Crowder, Mississippi, mm-hmm. ended up at West Point, knew pretty early on that he wanted to, that's what he wanted to do. And obviously if you're going to West Point, you got to kind of have your ducks in a row pretty early. Like, you know, they don't, there's no grade risks that are being taken to go play football at West Point by any stretch of the imagination. But with the Citadel, it being a military-esque academy, what does that look like from a service relationship standpoint? Like, are you required to do any type of service? Like how closely tied in is it to the military? It, it's a similar experience in terms of your day-to-day routines and the classes and you, know, you live a military lifestyle. You, you wear a uniform every day, all day and restrictions and things and you get hazed. That's an awful word these days. It seems like at least some people wouldn't like it. But anyway, um, you know, uh, the, what, the academies, it's nine-year commitment. You go to school for four years, you give them five years in the service. At the Citadel, you can do that. And the difference is you can do Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, any of the disciplines at the Citadel. You can sign a contract and you can do the exact same nine-year thing, come out as a second Louis, or you can attend via an athletic scholarship, or you can pay your way. So we have at the Citadel about 50% signed contracts going right in, right away. They get a badge. They, you know, they're they're going off on the same routines that West Pointers are in the summers and at Christmas. And then you have the others that are just going about a normal college life during their vacation. Okay. So it's different in the sense that you can, like you mentioned, you can pay your own way. The athletic scholarship actually exempts you from military service. Whereas if you were just an average Joe student at the Citadel and you wanted to get college paid for that, you would sign up for that nine-year agreement. Is that basically how that works? It is. So think of Texas A&M as a model, same way, right? Uh, the only difference is everybody is in the cadet environment at the Citadel, Texas A&M. Obviously that's not the case. Do they call it a plebeer at a, at it's a knob? You're actually called a knob, like a doorknob. 
Yeah, okay. you're the little scum on earth, you know, you walk in the gutters, you know, all that fun stuff. It's it's what I would consider, and and I'm not being dismissive of anything that's going on in football locker rooms. I've been in a lot of them over the years. Um, it's real hazing. So uh, it may not be anymore, but it used to be. I don't think it's quite as harsh as it used to be. So with the Citadel, you get there, you start playing college athletics, obviously playing college football. Is it from that standpoint, I always used to, I remember vividly my, the cousin I was referring to lives in the Dallas Fort Worth area. I used to live there. We watched the army Navy game there with a bunch of his buddies during COVID. And he, they were all joking around about like what the football players got off of. Like, of course there's no easy existence. It's pretty regimented no matter what you're there at West point for, but he would always joke about the small stuff that college football players at you know West Point or Navy got out of did y'all get any sort of preferential treatment or is it every man created equal? You know, I guess it's just you know pick your poison, right? You go get beat up for a little bit longer in the afternoons in the hot Charleston sun. Go, you know, our practice field was a marsh. State bird was the you know the the gnat and the fleas and just you know the chiggers. It, it was nothing about the Citadel was luxurious. No air conditioner, right? We lived in a no air conditioner environment. So Good sleeping Lord. at night. Yeah, imagine that in Charleston, right? Uh, so, but yes, we did get out of a lot of the military drill work, right? And the shining of the brass and the toilets and all that stuff. But, you know, you're also, you're not just hanging out watching soap operas. You know, you're, you're going out to practice and getting the crap beat out of you by upperclassmen. So that's your freshman existence. But yeah, there's a little bit of slack cut uh, uh, on athletes, but but it's not like they're getting to just hang out and do nothing. That's for sure. And you mentioned when I was asking you about how you ended up at the Citadel, you know, mentioned that you were, you know, no one in your family at that point had graduated college and you just didn't have a ton of direction. Was there a transition that you had to get used to with the amount of structure that is associated with a military like college like that? Because I'm always in some ways now in the business world, I'm a little bit jealous of that because my God, I was an absolute dipshit as an 18 and 19 year old freshman at Ole Miss. I probably could have used some of that. Did that take some adjusting? You know, it's it's funny. I say it this way. Going, this is this is one perspective just for me and my brother. Um, it was actually having been raised by my dad, who was an MP in the military. Uh, when he was younger and carried through that same mindset. And he, he was just me and my brother. It was actually easier going to the Citadel than it was being, you know, a son with my dad. So we, we'd been pretty well conditioned to be um, tough minded and disciplined in, in some ways. I mean, we were misfits too at 18, 17. I went in, I was still 17. And, uh, you know, yeah, we, we, we needed all the help we could get, but it wasn't that hard. You know, it's, you know, you get your head ready, prepared. They tell you what to expect. It's still difficult. The deprivation of what you 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 talk to your friends at Georgia, you talk to your friends at Georgia Southern. You go, "What are you doing?" And they're going to a fraternity party or sorority party, and you're there getting yelled at in a sweaty little room. You know, it's it's uh, it's different, but it's just more mental, emotional, some physical. But uh, no, we we were well prepared, and nothing that I think any young person can't work their way through. I introduced you at the top as a Citadel Hall of Famer, I believe, class of 2009. When did you figure out you could be a pretty good college football player? Because no matter what level you're going to, there's an adjustment phase from high school to college. Again, no matter what like level of college football you're going to, when did you figure out you could be a pretty good college football player? Uh, you know, it's a great question, man. I, I don't know what the, the – I mean, I was I made – I was all Southern Conference um, for three years. So, you know um, – I felt like I could compete, you know, when I got there, I was actually playing offensive tackle. They moved me to the defense 
I think just a different kind of profile I'd wrestled. So I was a little quicker and had hand striking ability. Um, but, you know, I it just, uh, you know, we, the funny thing about the Citadels, we had two money games a year, right? So we'd play Georgia Tech, we'd play Clemson, we'd play South Carolina, we'd play NC State, we played at Tennessee my freshman year, we played the famous Reggie White. And, um, you know, I, I got to where I felt like I could compete pretty well, right? Strength, size, agility, uh, knowledge of the game. And, uh, you know, I always just cherished going and playing the 1A schools when we would play Georgia Tech, you know, when we would play Clemson, when we would play South Carolina or even, you know, whoever. Um, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't as much of a physical mismatch. Um, and I knew probably knew more about the game than they did candidly. Uh, so I don't know. I just, you know, it evolved. I was a late bloomer and, uh, you know, I was young. I, I did a lot of people take an extra year in high school to develop. I was 17 when I went into college. So I just had more time to develop. And as I, de- as I grew and developed and got stronger, it just kind of came naturally. When you mentioned that, it made me think of, uh, so my, one of my best friends in my college roommate is now an agent and he was working, trying to get his start working with a couple of kids. And he has a kid that played college football at Delta state. He had transferred from a D two school in Ohio and he was a late bloomer to say the least. I think when he graduated high school, he was about 6'3, 210. And by the time he was at a sophomore at Delta State, he was 6'7, 320. Oh my and gosh. he had played both sides of the football in high school. They transitioned him to the offensive side, and he figured sure. that might be his best opportunity to get a college look. I feel like you don't get the other piece of it that you just described going from offense to defense what was that like for you because in some ways I imagine that had to be more fun because a lot of times it's not fun being an offensive lineman at least a defensive lineman you get stats did you enjoy that more what was that transition like yeah I mean I played both ways in high school so I had defense on both they just brought me initially as a lineman uh yeah no defense is a lot more fun than offense uh without question you know just the whole nature of the aggression you know you have an objective of tackle the man with the ball, the sooner the better, as my brother says. Um, but, you know, the thing I would say it hurt me in the end is because in the NFL, the skill set to be a defensive lineman is slightly different, right? I would have been a much better offensive guard in the NFL, and I personally think played for a long time, versus being, being stuck at, you know, a defensive tackle or a nose man in the NFL. So, anyway, my my short NFL career. But, yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a lot more fun to play defense than offense for sure. You mentioned playing the couple money games per year. I always find that fascinating from a player who's played at a smaller school and going into stadiums like that. Do you remember the first time you walked into a stadium the size of Neyland or Bobby yeah. Dodd or whatever it was at the time? Do you remember yeah. that kind of hitting you like a ton of bricks? For sure. I mean, you know, and uh, I, you know, Tennessee is a is a remarkable place, right? Neyland Stadium. Um, you know, uh, Clemson is a remarkable place. I mean, South Carolina. I mean, the fans of South Carolina, I applaud them to this day. And I, and I love the fact that we've beat them a few times over the de- couple of decades. Um, you know, I'm sure when our team went down and beat Arkansas, they, that was a rowdy group too. But anyway, you know, I, I, uh, those are great places. Obviously, with my brother being a coach, I've been in some wonderful college environments. Um, it gets you pumped up. I mean, you want to see if you're capable of playing against those type of better offensive linemen, if in my case, or the running backs or whoever you're, you're competing one-on-one with. It's yeah. a little bit of a double-edged sword, too, is it not? Because if you beat them, they're not sticking you on the schedule anymore. They're not in the business of losing those games. They <laughs> yeah, want to beat and win. Yeah, you're right. I, I uh, Yeah, I think that gap's grown a little more. I mean, App State has obviously ascended. Georgia Southern has. 
Um, but yeah, South Carolina doesn't have a choice. We're there in, we're an in-state rival. They should kill us every year with their recruiting prowess and budget. But you know, we we you know we we always ran the the triple option and the wishbone, and that that presents challenges to some of those defensive schemes, and they don't prepare for it every year. So it it does, you know, it, it presents a challenge. So um, you know, those are fun games. But the reality of it is, for our budget, it's it's the only thing that gives us the ability to buy a new pair of cleats every other year, right? <laughs> I'd laugh at it when my brother, I go to Alabama or one of the programs he's been at and these kids just see, I mean, the, the equipment they get is just mind boggling um, to me. But at the Citadel, we'd wear the same cleats for, you know, two years, it just just a totally different budget. Which is <laughs> crazy too, because I remember yeah. Ole Miss 2014 or 15 played Lamar, which I believe is another smaller school in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of the agreement with the whole typical buy game agreement was actually that Ole Miss was going to install lights at their stadium. That, that was like right. actually part of the buy game agreement. Right. And it just kind of reminds you of like, you know, the different levels of it and why those teams kind of pay to get the shit kicked out of them for three hours for the lack of a better phrase. It's uh there's, I could see that. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, whatever they spend the money on, however they, um, maybe Ole Miss had an alumni in the, in, in the stadium light business, they could get a good deal on um that's good business uh i don't know you know what i never heard of anything like that for us it was more like we'd get paid 250 or 400 you know that was kind of the going right then i think it's a little bit more now and so did y'all know the deal going into games like that like you clearly knew why you were playing that game were y'all pretty aware of it was it ever talked about like from a day-to-day <sighs> weekly preparation locker room standpoint because I, yeah, I can't imagine your coach can give you the whole rah-rah we're going to beat them today type of thing every single time you step on the field at one of those games yeah, no, no, there was, I mean, you know, every coach is a little different, but um, it was just more about competing, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever you could do, but the economics of it, I think we had some jokes there, you know, let's, let's go get some new, you know, we ate at a mess hall, you know, our, our, pro, our, um, what do they call it at the, you know, all of the nutrition stands that they have in the weight room where there's just plentiful amounts of food and, uh, drinks and everything else at these programs. Now that obviously didn't exist. We marched to the mess hall, you know, fell out of formation and sat at a table and, you know, and had to serve everyone. And we ate the same thing the entire school body did. So it's not like there was this huge um, benefit to being an athlete in that regard. So, yeah, no, I, I um, th- there were some jokes about it. Let's go get us some, you know, beanie weenies or whatever, you know, but uh, the economics really didn't, we didn't know that much about it back then. We didn't understand it. You mentioned running kind of the triple option and the wishbone at the Citadel when you're in college. That was a little bit more common when you played. Now it's a rarity, right? It's the service academies. Now that Paul Johnson is out of the mix at Georgia Tech, you don't really see it a ton more. Georgia Southern has kind of gone through different variations of it. When you watch a college football game now and they're running some variation of the triple option, does it bring some nostalgia back? It does. I enjoy watching it. I mean, I know how painful it is to play against that offense, right? Especially as a defensive lineman and the linebacker, because they're eating up your legs. They've changed some rules on the high-low block, smart changes. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a great offense. I mean, it's a tough tough one to defend. You have to be very disciplined. I mean, Charlie Taft and George O'Leary, when they were at UCF, they kind of mixed it in. Uh, Taft did some of it at Maryland with Freegian. Um, you know, there's still, there's some, you know, there's some derivative plays coming out of it in schemes. Um, but yeah, not the hardcore purebred, you know, triple option veer type of stuff. It's not, not the same anymore. 
I've been surprised and I'm like, I watch college football every year and I have just a long list of dumb thoughts as I'm watching the game. But with the amount of stupid stuff that coaches do down near the goal line, when they're within that 10 yard range of getting in the end zone, I'm surprised they don't whip out the triple option as a goal line package more, because I feel like the amount of things that can go wrong is significantly less than, I don't know, the one-on-one fade or whatever it is that makes fans mad that they do. I'm surprised people have not whipped that out more as a goal line package, if nothing else. It would work. No, I mean, it's tight. You're, you know, your gaps get tighter. Um, but certainly for, you know, you've got more, uh, you know, who am I? I'm not an offensive guy, but I, I agree with you. I mean, hey, let's do a triple option, then a tight end jump pass to the back of the end zone, you know, whatever. Fake the handoff to the fullback and fake a toss you know, whirly bird and dump it to the Tebow in the back of the end zone or something, but, uh, or T, you know, like Tebow did when he did it. But anyway, no, I agree with you. It's, it's a, uh, it's a lethal scheme to a lot of different defensive structures. You mentioned it being tough to go against. Obviously you went up against it in practice most days. I imagine you'll probably saw that a time or two against another opponent you played. That's mm-hmm. probably actually a rough deal for an interior defensive lineman because no matter if the ball's going to, I call it a fullback, I don't know what they call it in that offense, but you're probably getting hammered on every single play regardless of where the action goes. Yeah, no, it's it's a full frontal, right? I mean, there it's a coming off the ball, ball right? There's no... Every their their hands in the dirt every play right. There's forward motion. You know there's going to be a collision. It's not a. It's a you know they don't pass a lot. And even when they do, the linemen are are still projecting forward. So, um, yeah, no, it's a it's a you know it's a headache. It's a headache to defend for sure. And you know, in every sense, um, yeah, maybe that's why I have both you know two hips replaced in the knee. <laughs> <laughs> So you leave the Citadel. You were joking about it yesterday about having the shortest NFL career ever. You catch on with the Atlanta Falcons. The process in terms of like the your college career ends up until the combine and the draft, whether you're going to be a guy that gets drafted or not, seems very night and day different than it was even 25 years ago. And particularly mm-hmm. when you were playing as well, take me through having the shortest NFL career ever. How, what was your pre-draft process like? How did you catch on with the Falcons for the amount of time that you did? Yeah, no. So um, I, um, I I played in the Senior Bowl. I actually got an invite. They typically invite some small school prospects every year that they think they need to evaluate. So went down there, had a great, had, a, a you know, an OK week, you know, there with uh, some players that, you know, just from around the SEC and elsewhere. It was, it was I enjoyed it. You know, it didn't feel like I was felt like I competed reasonably well. But anyway, so. Um, the uh, who is the who is the sports recruiter? Or the guy who does the draft, not McShay, but who's the guy that Kuiper been around the block a while? Yeah, Mel, yeah. Mel Kuiper, exactly. So I think at one point he projected me in like the fifth to sixth round. Back then they had twelve, right? And so, uh, so that's a big now, deal for you. It, it was a big deal. I was excited, but the reality of it is, is that I pro- I just didn't test as well. I had a great five ten five shuttle. My forty speed was awful for defensive lineman. My upper body strength, I mean, I could bench 400 pounds, but not that, I mean, that do the, the 225 in the low 20s, 23, 24 times. They wanted to see more. So, and I, and I didn't have like the arm measurements and, and some of the other measurements that they, the quants that they do. And, uh, you know, the reality of it is I, I slipped and um, I was either going to the Raiders or the Falcons. So I, Howie Long was my idol. I always wanted to go and play with him, but Al Davis was, was there and, uh, 
you know, he, you know, they called, which they were going to sign me as a free agent. The draft came and went and I decided to stay close to home and decided the Falcons would be an easier squad to make. So came in, uh, spent the summer there, trained, camp started, you know, Bill Fralix of the world, Mike Kins, these are names you probably don't know, John Scully. Um, and then the reality of it is Tony Casillas, a nose man, went out on psychological eval. They moved me to nose man. The second preseason game, week after the second preseason game, I tore the, my right great toe, disconnected the tendon in your toe Ooh. and broke a bone in my foot. It's still permanently contracted. You want to see it? Anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it's still permanently contracted. They put me on injured reserve. And, you know, the interesting thing, they all knew I had a job at Arthur Anderson waiting, which is a, you talk about another obscure anomaly, right? But the Arthur Anderson guys would come to practice. You know, the nerds would come up to practice and watch it. it would, they, they stuck out like a sore thumb with dark socks and everything else. But the orthopedic surgeon there, John Garrett, asked me, he goes, he said, I never will forget him calling me in that morning and saying, Scott, he goes, you know, he goes, this is really hard to do, but we got to make the call. He goes, I'm going to activate you this morning. I'm like, activate me. Okay, so what does that mean? He goes, well, kind of putting you in a playable status. And I still had a metal plate in my shoe, right? I was still walking around with a plate in my shoe to keep my toe from moving to pull out the, the whatever. And um, I said, I, I'm not playable. He goes, well, I'm just going to have to activate you. It's kind of a decision we have to make for the roster. I said, okay, that's fine. And I got cut that afternoon. So activated in the morning, cut in the afternoon. The cruelty of the or the, of the business, you know, hits you like a ton of rocks. Not like we didn't already know that, right? I mean, it happened. Two of my roommates, the Turk came in, you know, you get the knock at 530 in the morning and the, and you're looking at each other going, I said, you or me? And the guy goes, you know, Reynolds, break, coach wants to see you, bring your playbook, Whew, roll over and go back to sleep. That poor guy's never see him again, right? Um, that happened to two of my roommates in camp. And then, uh, so anyway, it was it was a, an interesting experience. But the, my conversation with John Garrett, the orthopedic, he Scott, be thankful you have a career and a great education. So whatever you do beyond football, you're going to do, you're going to do fine. And he was, it was it was kind of like this cold reality of man, you're really screwing me. There's no way I'm playable. You're the man making the call because I, I get it that the Smith family's making you, but at the same time, he was right. And uh, so I got cut. My agent says that's not right, you know, whatever. But he was, I got, he was sending me to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Canada, and I'm like, wait, I wasn't exactly sure what that was all about, but I did know that it was paying like, you know, thirty thousand dollars, and my offer to join Arthur Anderson was at thirty two. So I took the, I mean, I said, okay, <laughs> paid for my college. I'm not good enough for the NFL. I'm not going to sit here, you know, train and heal for a year. My career's over. So that's that was the decision I made. We'll get back to Scott in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season coming up. Go ahead and sign up for Skybox's NFL and college football picks. If you're into gambling, you're never going to profit in the long run based off of just your own brain and your own leans before kickoff. Skybox are the professionals. All you have to do is sign up. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can go all season. I'd recommend the year-long VIP pass. You can try it for all sports, one particular sport, whatever it may be. You sign up, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. And they'll send you a picks package in a nice color-coded spreadsheet categorized by unit. And boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were 
by not using Skybox Sports Picks. They're the only way to profit in the long run. They're the professionals. They've done it year after year and proven themselves to profit, to make their clients a profit year after year. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, the deal is three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Just go show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites. They have all kinds of delicious cuts of meat, outstanding sausages, fresh seafood. It's the greatest butcher shop in the world. Truly a crown jewel of the town of Oxford. If you haven't been to LB's, you're missing out. Prime grilling season. It's hot outside. Go throw something delicious on the grill and get it from LB's. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Scott Thompson. Okay, so that's fascinating. When you mentioned that you get the notification that you're going to be activated, in the moment, I know you have the injury, which probably had to make the news more shocking. Did you think that's good news in the moment? Like you get activated, but you're cut in the afternoon. Did you think you had made the team for a short while? That seems like a bizarre way to deliver that news. Uh, you know, activate. No, I didn't. I didn't think I'd made the team because we all clearly know the the cut timeline, right? Leading okay. up to the after the final preseason game, right? That's everybody knows. These are, you know, you've made it through this gauntlet, this gauntlet, gauntlet, whatever. Uh, no, activated was just we're going to put you on back on the active roster from IR, and so at that, they, here's the way the the collective bar, collective. Let's see, the uh, the collective bargaining agreement says if a player's hurt in camp. He must be maintained on the roster to the same degree until he's rehabilitated to the same degree of health he was when he came into camp. Right. Okay. So basically what he was saying is I'm now rehabilitated to the same degree of health. And I'm like, there's no chance I can get in a stance. <laughs> right. I mean, and play nose man against Bill Fralick. Yeah. that That's, you know, my, I, I barely had passive movement in my foot, but anyway, he, it, so that's what it was. It was more just activating me for purposes of meeting, yeah, the crazy thing, my agent did file a, an arbitration claim with him, and um, it was the year after the scab strike. Fifteen months later, the week before our arbitration hearing, the, they gave me a settlement. I think it was like twenty five grand, and I, I'd already started work at Arthur Anderson. I'd already lost sixty pounds. I was happy to get a twenty five thousand dollar check. You know, so it literally was a, that the cycle had completed itself at that point. You mentioned when you were talking about where you were going to go 12 rounds in the NFL draft back then, Howie Long was your idol. I kind of keep referring back to this Nick Melsop kid that I had on the pod a couple months ago. He's in the camp with the Raiders. He got, I would say, the highest, not to pat my buddy who's the agent on the back, the highest version of an undrafted free agent deal you can get, multiple years of guarantees. Even if they cut him, he'll still get paid. So, like, they actually think he has a chance to make the roster, but I was talking to him. I was like, dude, you went from Delta State. Have you ever thought about the fact in training camp you'll be lining up against Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack? And he's like, you know, I never thought about it that way, but now it sounds kind of intimidating. I was like, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to put that in your head, but I imagine you emulated those guys to some degree playing defense in high school growing up. Was there a culture shock moment for you, whether it was the Falcons or anywhere else, or like dudes I've watched on TV are now my teammates? Yeah, you know, it's funny, yeah. Bill Fralick was, I mean, he's passed since passed way too early, was an incredible football player. I mean, he played on an unheralded team. Obviously, the Falcons weren't good, but came out of Penn State. Badass, heavyweight wrestler. We had some commonality. We we spent a lot of time together in camp. I mean, Andre Bruce was the number one person taken in the draft that year. He came in, he would just stone. I mean, Mike Ken, they would just stone Andre Bruce. I mean, kid, you know, ragdoll, right? Quick, but get out of here. Uh, yeah, there was some, and I will tell you this, um, uh, the, the running back, uh, uh, 
gosh, I'm just drawing a blank real quick. It'll come to me in a second. But anyway, just, yeah, there's definitely intimidation. Size, speed is immediate. I mean, you 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 know, I don't care if you play at Clemson. Alabama and Georgia may be in a different league, but either way, you step onto an NFL field and you notice immediately that it's a different – it's it's a junior high to high school, high school to college, college, 1AA or SEC, and the NFL, different league, right? It is uh, – it's a Gerald Riggs was the running back. The coach told me, said, told all of us, he said, Hey, if you're going to hit Mr. Riggs, you better bring it all because he's a man, right? And I never been that tried to reach out and arm tackle him. And he snapped his bicep muscle and it just Ooh. rolled up at his elbow because, because Gerald Riggs freaking thighs are this, you know, this damn big. And he, what he kind of told or warned us about, it actually happened you know, three or four weeks into pads. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, the physics change a lot uh, in every aspect, you know, whatever, whatever acceleration, mass force, it's all different. I mean, hell, just the clenching of the fist. I still got bruises on my tits that Mike Ken as an offensive tackle would just, you know, not that he was holding or anything. He was just like ripping my flesh off my bones. But, you know, that's we, we're all used to that. And, uh, yeah, it's a totally different, different league. But your your buddy has the size. If he's got the arm length, he's got the leverage. If he has the foot speed, if he's got good strong back and balance, and he can react quick enough, he'll. I mean, size helps. Size size gives you a lot of advantage as as an OT. Uh, but you know, you better be mean, and you better be, you know, have great uh, hip and back strength. So if he's got that, he's got a chance. That to me is a very interesting pivot in your career from football into the business world, which we'll get into in just a second. Do you think your decision would have been any different and you would have tried to play out the string longer had you not been injured when all of that came to a head? I, I'm pretty sure I would have been cut, you know, Brian. Okay. I'm not, I mean, I'm not arrogant enough to think, I, you know, I've made the comment that if I'd have played offensive guard, I felt like I could have played longer. Sure. And I, and I do believe that, right? Because I played offensive defense. Um, but uh, as a defensive lineman, I probably wasn't good enough. You know, just um, Tony Casillas, he was, you know, he had a great career. He was a decent guy. He was quick. He had good leverage. But, uh, um, nah, I mean, I, I it worked out the best way it needed to for me personally. You know, <laughs> paid for college, got a little fun at the end to go and get uh, beat up in the NFL um, and, and have great stories. You know, it served me well, right? When I went to Arthur Anderson, I can't even tell you. We talked – you know, people go, oh, there's the guy that was at the, he was just at the Falcons camp two weeks ago. You know, we went to see him practice. You know, it was, it was the greatest thing because here I am amongst all these nerds, not, not all nerds. That's bad. They were fabulous human beings. And many mostly of nerds. Athletes, many of them athletes. Let me tell you, many of fabulous athletes at Arthur Anderson. We won the ESPN corporate sports challenge actually with our team, but um, you know, so anyway, uh, yeah, so it served me well. I, I, I had no illusion that it would last any longer. When you take the job at Arthur Anderson, what's the off-field adjustment like? Because now more so than ever with the way these kids prep from 14 years old on to be a football player, the transition for kids when they realize that, you know, their career's done and it's not going to pan out and they're not going to be an NFL Hall of Famer the way they thought is probably as stark as ever. You had some resources at your disposal, going to a good school, being at a military academy, having structure, you're obviously very intelligent. What was the uh, like? What was the transition into a desk job from an NFL practice field like? It, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was it was it was definitely different, right? I mean, I, I tell this story sometimes, or I used to think about it. I don't know that I've told it in a while, but 
um, you know, I had to have my suits made. I went from, you know, having a 19 and three quarter inch neck and a smaller waist and big shoulders. Now I've done just the opposite, by the way. It's just the opposite. But um, I had to have all my suits made. And my first client was in New York. So I remember going in there at this telecom company and they're like, who is this freak? You know, just looked very out of place. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun, actually. But it, the reality of it is those kids had gone to school to study accounting, to be really good at what they did. I went to school, studied accounting to make good grades on the test. But it, I mean, it was not my identity. You know, my identity was athlete, cadet, good student. Yes. So I was you know, I had a lot I had a steep learning curve ahead of me, you know, to get back in that mindset to figure out what in the world is auditing. I really I really don't know. So. That's where really the the rest of my life is has been based on that. I mean, relationships I I got at that firm with just wonderful, super smart people that helped me up the curve on perspective, context, and then te- a very technical environment and getting better and better. And to this day, they still are. I mean, best friends, and you know, we've enjoyed each other's success over the decades. It's crazy the physical transition when you like go away from football. I have a buddy of mine played uh, offensive tackle at Ole Miss for three, four years under Hugh Freeze, and he got out, never really gave the NFL a try. But I saw him, I remember like two years after he got out at a tailgate, and he like yelled at me, and I turned around, and I was like, holy shit, I don't even recognize you. He was like 315 as an offensive tackle in the SEC. And I was just talking to him. I was like, weird question, man, but what are you wearing these days? Like, I was kind of shocked to see you in the state you are. You look great, but like, it's nuts. He's like, dude, I'm 210. It's been the craziest transition ever. What That's is true. that like when that happens? Because you mentioned you lost a ton of weight. Do you feel better or worse? Is that oh, weird? You feel, like a, you feel like a gazelle. If you're a lineman and you go, I mean, three, 300 pounds, that lineman back then didn't exist, right? They were anomalies. But we were 285 in that range. And I, I after playing, you just stop eating. And I mean, I started, you know, doing aerobics, more back to doing martial arts, did triathlons, started doing triathlons. And I went to 225 like nobody's business. And my wife's going to walk around the corner here in a minute and go, well, why don't you start that again? But, and I kept doing that until I was 36 years old when I had my first hip replacement, when my first joint went out. So uh, since then, I've kind of, I've, she has every reason to give me a hard time. But um, anyways, maybe, 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 Brian, maybe you'll be the motivation to get me going again. But I, I, there's no running. I mean, your body does. I played 17.25 years of football, and your body takes a toll on it. Started when I was five and finished when I was 23. So, um, you know, joint replacements and others. As my orthopedic surgeon says, he goes, Scott, don't worry about it. We can replace all your joints. It's your frontal lobe. We can't do anything about. And I think that's very true, by the way. <laughs> Not I for would me, totally agree with that. For a lot of kids, it's without question. If you're around former players, NFL players that I see, college players that I see, you know, the CTE thing is a real thing. I'll just tell you that there's no doubt in my mind. So, oh, a hundred percent. And you can kind of tell, I won't call it a cutoff point, but the guys that played in, I don't know if it's late nineties or early two thousands, but you can tell a guy that played in X era versus Y era in terms of just kind of the technology and things like that is a, it's a stark difference. And there's obviously exceptions to the rule either way. Yeah. So you, you go to Arthur Anderson. I've had plenty of friends that have gone into the public large scale accounting space. That's not exactly uh leisurely hours by any stretch, but I imagine you were probably used to that at that point. I asked you about the transition. At what point did you know you could be, hey, I'm not just a numbers guy. Like I understand business. I can actually make something of myself. I'm not going to be a public accountant the rest of my life. When did that happen? 
you know, I was just at that point, you're just trying to harvest skills, right? You're trying to, to understand, call it accounting, call it finance. You work with a lot of small businesses as clients, mid-sized businesses, and you learn from those entrepreneurs. You get to hang out with them. If you're taking a client through an IPO, you get to see what that process is. And oh, what is an IPO? What does that really mean in terms of becoming a public company, right? Or if you see a company that gets bought by a private equity firm or you have private equity clients. So the exposure, the, the you know, just the whole mental development is, is unique, uh, you know, skill sets of accounting and then beyond. But then went on, left Arthur Anderson, moved to Chicago, went to Baxter, another large company, did, didn't want to do the auditing. I always looked at it like I was coming in after the fight was over and counting dead bodies. That was auditing, right? So I wanted to go somewhere where we were creating stuff. And so Baxter was a fantastic product and sales big organization. So I went there, kind of added new functional skills and then kind of went from there uh, into other areas. How did you, how do you, did you figure out you had a numbers brain? Because like for myself, I spent five years as a sports reporter. I'm still not sure why Rob hired me as a marketing guy, but we've done okay since. But numbers are like the death of me. I don't have that brain. I had to take accounting 201 and 202 to be a business major, but barely got through that. And if I had to do accounting related stuff, I think I'd probably just self, like self combust. I just, it's not my brain. When did you figure out you were kind of a numbers guy? Where did you get that from? I'm a big believer that nobody gets everything right. I mean, I can't, there's no way I could do what you do. You are superb. I watched some of your previous YouTubes and that, I mean, you are fantastic. You are a, a talent to be discovered. I promise you. Um, you know, it's funny, but we were this weekend, this is, this I'll just throw this in my brother. I was with a teammate, two, two soul engineers, right. And Timmy was sitting there and we were sitting at lunch one day at Pose on Sullivan's Island. And uh, we were talking and cutting up and he looked at Lance. He goes, Lance, you remember? He goes, man, I, I, who, who would have thought I'd been a civil engineer when you were sitting there? You know, I would have never passed um, um, multivariant calculus without you, you know, or what was the other a complex math? It was um, uh, it was another it was another class that they had to take. Right. My brother's a numbers guy. You should my dad, my brother's encyclopedic. You should hear him recite every recruit, every high school football coach, every player, all their stats, everything, right? Encyclopedic about that. Very, very good about that. And he's a math guy because he was, you know, he was a math major education. I you dry, dropped you there, Brian. Um, and then I kind of have some of that same aptitude, not quite honestly, not as much as him, but, um, you know, just had the development. I couldn't do what you do. And, uh, you know, it, the rest of this stuff has just come through spaced repetition, as I call it, you get better at it with age. But yours is at least a discernible skill. I would call mine the art of bullshitting for the lack of a better phrase. You know, you can just get on a microphone for an hour and just make conversation. Like it's the, a gift, like, baby. It's a gift. Crunching through numbers seems so much more difficult to me. But be that as it may, you make a couple stops after that. Take me through the transition of you being a numbers guy, you being an accountant toward starting businesses, selling yeah. them, getting involved versus in the private equity space. At what point in your life did that happen? So when I was um, in my 30s, I guess, I came back to Atlanta, worked for a couple of old partners of mine from Arthur Anderson. They were CEO and CEO of a public company called Metaphys Corporation. They brought me back in to help with special projects, moved into corporate development, M&A. So we were a company that was a Wall Street darling that had fallen. My guys came in. They brought me in. We were fortunate enough through a series of buying and selling companies and products. We took the stock from 3 to 28, sold it to uh, 
to McKesson here in Atlanta and happy to move on. And at that point, one of the little entrepreneurs that we had looked at buying his company and couldn't strike terms with, he asked me to come be his CFO and help him sell his company. So I did. I went in. We spent a few months getting it ready um, and we sold it to Bank of America. And fortunate through that transaction, I stayed at Bank of America in their financial uh, medical banking space um, and then kind of really got the entrepreneurial bug. I, I saw how people could take ideas and, and be more of a niche player. Right. Um, I understood the the business of healthcare. I, I gained that while I was at Metaphys and Per Se Technologies. And I'd done it, you know, with some of our other little tuck in businesses. I got some operational exposure. So, you know, I had some creativity. You know, I, I could I could kind of see process flows. And I understood at that point the Internet had come on. So cloud based technologies were available. I learned how just, you know, they call it AI machine learning today. Back then, it was just basic software to write rules to automate tasks, right? Robotic process automation. And I was fortunate to be around a lot of smart guys, you know, that were programmers that and and I would and we would together, we would kind of conceive, you know, the the value proposition of saying, look, we can we can kind of value stream this, we can process map it. And, and rather than have 40 people touch fingers all day in some soul defeating job, we're going to write a piece of software and deliver the value from this stream. And they're going to pay us X thousand dollars a month. So we've We've that's as the basis of learning. We've done that a few times in a few different companies. And, um, you know, and it's been uh, it's been great to get, you know, it's always about the people that you're with. And I've been very, very fortunate to be around a lot of smart guys and ladies. And uh, and we you know, it's worked out great. I mean, I understood the M&A. I knew I'd always start a venture with a this is who I'm going to sell this business to three to four or five years from now, right? They're going to be my target or this is who I'm going to disrupt. And defensively, they're going to need to buy us. So, you know, it's just a, now it's a mindset. I, I, I'm retired, but I still tinker with it. And I love doing it. And I love teaching young people to do it. I help some of my former employees start their own businesses and do it. So um, it's been a, it's been a great learning journey. Um, and now the world is moving beyond me. I mean, AI was just, I just today, to the, speaking of AI, Stanford has this new class and it's a very advanced AI class. I, I sent it to one of my old developers. I said, hey, man, I'll sponsor you if you want to go take this class. And he goes, I might. I'd love to. Let me get back to you. So I hear that and it's just makes me feel great, you know. So anyway, go ahead. I'm kind of rambling. No, no, that was a great answer. And so when you mentioned kind of catching the entrepreneurial itch, I imagine at that point, there was probably some sort of mental transition from, Hey, I'm an accountant. I'm a numbers guy. I'm pretty good at this To It becomes more of a passion and less of a job. Like when you catch an itch like that, of course it's all still hard work, but I imagine at some point as you've continued to gain success in your career, it became less of a, I'm clocking in from eight to five or whatever the hell it is to I'm driven because I enjoy doing this and almost kind of solving this puzzle. Yeah, no, no, that I can do the books for just about any business in my sleep. Right. I mean, that's, the balance sheet, the reconciliations, the PL, the cash flow statement. That's a skill. I mean, I don't care. As I, I use the examples when I'm talking to my friends' kids, I don't have any kids, but are my nieces or whatever. I don't care if you're shipping dog turds out of China or you're starting the next Facebook. You know, you need the numbers are the numbers and there's a process and there are rules and you just follow them, right? And new software, revenue recognition rules and all that. It's pretty straightforward. I, so it's simple to me, just like it is for you to, to get on the phone for an hour and talk, right? But um, so, 
but you know that yeah the 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 entrepreneurial bug once you once you get it so early on it's always fear motivated right it's greed and fear like everything else it's how excited you are but you know if you and i'm not a super competitive guy to be honest with you i mean i am once 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 the once this once you step between the chalk lines or in the cage or in the alley i'm a very competitive guy but i'm not out there trying to prove a point to anybody I get interested in something and then I, then I apply passion to it and I'm around other people. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, no, there's lots of sleepless nights. It takes that, right. If you're going to get after and build a business, the iterative process of success and failure and incremental progress and getting your first customer, getting your first MVP, minimal viable product, getting to profitability, which is survivability, hopefully losing your first customer, you know, buying a small company, selling your first small company, whatever it's all of those are, you know, I'm, I say it in a fairly dismissive way now, but those are, those are huge developmental points in your life. If you're lucky to be able to do something like that. I mean, you live in the world of a very entrepreneurial minded team, right? Mr. Elias, Mr. Vincent. I mean, they, you know, that they've done it. They've done the cycle. They're going to continue to do it and you're going to be a part of, it, or you're going to do your own. So I have no doubt you're going to get to do that. But for me, the number, it's always has to be quant. I, I call it the quant and the qual. You have to be able to answer the five questions of a business, whether it's real or not, or if it's a hobby or an idea. And then you have to understand the numbers and you have to understand the product and the customers. No Where did the healthcare focus come in? Because I know the last three companies you've been associated in seems like in the mid 2010s, you became kind of the co-founder and yeah. those couple of companies got sold. Did the co the healthcare piece of it and that emphasis just kind of happen? Or is that something you felt like you, you were really dialed into? When I got brought back to Metaphys from my old partners, Alan, or my old bosses at Arthur Anderson, they were partners at Arthur Anderson, Alan Ritchie and Wayne Tanner. When they brought me back to be a part of Metaphys, that was a healthcare company, okay. right? a large billing company, the largest in the country for physicians. And so it all just kind of expanded from there. So that's how. And and it's not a bad industry, right? It's 20% of our GDP. So there's lots of pieces, you know, follow the funds flow. Where, where are people spending money? Where are, their, where are their opportunities? So it's a great industry to pick off niches. Absolutely. I mean, 20% of the GDP would seem like there's some opportunity there. So you're now involved with a organization called Stand Up for Those Who Can't. And it's based off of, I believe, a college teammate of yours who is yeah. paralyzed. And without butchering the rest of the description of it, take me through what that is and why you're involved in it. Yeah. And so that's their tagline. You're the marketing guy. You should know. That's the tagline. So the organization is called the Miami Project, right? And that's that's actually the, the organization that Nick Bonacani, a lot of people recognize that name, Hall of Fame, uh, Dolphins, you know, all that stuff. His son is one of his sons. Mark Bonacani was my teammate. On October 25th, 1985, we were playing at East Tennessee State and Mark broke his neck on the seventh defensive play of the game. And he was my teammate. Right. And it's when something like that happens in front of your eyes, you can you can give all of the analogies you want. You're never quite the same. And what's unique about Mark was that that he had his dad and they started this thing called the Miami project and the funding arm is called the Bonacani fund where they raise money. They have now raised almost $600 million over the course of the past 35 years you know, or more well, since I guess it's 35 since they've had it. But anyway, um, that, and it's just been, it's been actually a catalyst to bring us all together because we were all there, all the people on the field that day, including the East Tennessee state team. Um, and Mark is just a 
force of nature, right? I mean, it that night and that week's ensuing, they didn't give him a chance to live past 30. He's now 57, 57 years old, and wow. he's a phenomenal public speaker. He's a quadriplegic. Um, I, I have now joined the Bonacani Fund as the treasurer. Mr. Bonacani's initial appointee, who's had for 30 years, passed away earlier this year. Mark asked me to be the treasurer. So I'm going on to the board of the Bonacani Fund and to be their treasurer, which is great. We have this, this thing called every year we have the Sports Legend Dinner in New York City. I mean, everybody from Ali to you name it, Michael Jordan, they've all been inducted at this ceremony. And it's the largest fundraiser of the year. And it's just remarkable. And so we'll be back there October in New York City this year to do that. But um, stand up for those you can't, those, those you who can't is a play on the wheelchair, right? So do what you can to help, in this case, spinal cord injury victims for them to find a cure. The the, the Miami Project is a cure base. You know, the Shepherd's Spinner. Shepherd Spinal Center here in Atlanta, world-renowned, great, improving the life of people who are paras and quads. The Miami Project is focused on curing paralysis. They're doing all kinds of crazy trials all over the world. And, um, you know, hopefully with, uh, you know, the improved technologies, they will find a cure. Um, but for me personally, it's just kind of consistent with my theme. I, I picked it up because, you know, I'm an anti-bully guy. There's a lot of bad people out there. You know, you see them in finance, you see them in other places. And as a big guy, you know, not to be a big guy, you know, normally big guys aren't bullies. They're not that way. Actually, most athletes are not. And, um, you know, then the I will call say just SEC athletes. They're great kids. They're not bullies. But I'm a, I'm a big anti-bully guy. Uh, Tim Tebow Foundation and others. Um, and uh, so it's just the way I feel. So I think I think it's just a great tagline for them. And it's a great mission for me uh, at this point in my life. And it's a really awesome cause. And I imagine one that would hit home to some degree for a lot of people out there listening, because Ole Miss obviously has a very famous case of its own with Chucky Mullins sure. and the way it, yeah. all of that happened. And I was curious, you kind of outlined the fundraising and kind of how all of that works, but I was just curious, like if you have any say strong opinions as if we're doing like a first take segment here on ESPN. But one of the things when I read about that, that struck me was I remember I was covering Ole Miss in 2018 and one of the guys in the media actually had a son who played on the offensive line. And he would always kind of give a really candid take on kind of the athlete, student athlete life in major college football. And he was like, look, son's name is Eli. He's like, look, if Eli has a couple of surgeries after college, like that's on him. Like, I wish there was a better way to do things like that. These guys put their lives on the line or bodies on the line for four years for this university. But like, once you get gone, it's kind of on you. Like, is that something that is talked about amongst your alumni circles, athlete circles, just the fact that whatever lingering injuries you have from this combat sport are kind of your own problem aside from you going professional? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely an issue. I, I, we were talking about the Knight Commission report that just came out in June. Yeah. Uh, I, I would encourage everybody to download it and read it. And there's all kind of new proposals where these kids will get medical care for um i forgot how many years it after 10 years to finish their degree mental health and uh yeah it would be nice if that was available um i'm also a member of the nfl players association all the shortest career in the history i qualify because i signed a contract hey, it counts it all counts hey baby i got you know yeah I, I went out there and got my ass beat for a little while and um it was a beautiful thing and uh but i enjoy being a part of it because again i'm kind of unique in that setting right i mean when i go to these meetings uh, the conversations are different. And I see the despair in a lot of these people's lives, you know, even if they played in the NFL for two or three years, but it doesn't, it's not change your life money. 
or maybe your behavior, you know, your financial skills weren't there. But um, yeah, and it's certainly uh, not a pension that's going to carry you the rest of the way. Four years, you got to play. They just changed it to three years, but you used to have to play four years before you get a pension. But it's it's trivial. I mean, it's like it used to be like six hundred dollars per month per year of service, right? So you played ten years, you got six thousand dollars a month. That's great, but that's nothing, right? I mean. Um, so anyway, point being is those it's getting to that point. I mean, maybe we'll touch on some of the broader issues in college ball, which I have a little bit of a tangential relationship to through my brother, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, um, it's a price to be paid. Right. I mean, there's, there's no doubt it, you, you know, it, it comes calling. I mean, those depending on how long you played and what position you played and how you played, um, all of that, there's a toll to be extracted on your body. Exacted. I should say. You led me exactly to where I was going next as far as your brother. You're the brother, a uh, younger brother of a major D1 college football coach. I believe he's currently the linebackers coach with Loxley at Maryland. He's been around the block in the Southeastern Conference. What has that been like? Because I know when we were talking yesterday, you're like, look, I was just an average fan. Like, I, I'm not asking my brother for inside info all the time. But obviously, in the last couple of years, for better or for worse, which we won't discuss on this podcast today, you've become privy to the inside information. How shocking was that to you to kind of understand the business of what college football is, having a brother as a major college football coach? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're in this kind of transformational period. The business of college football is changing, right? Obviously, you know, since the Austin ruling and and the the, the creation of nil and, and other things. But um he never really brought it up to me. I was busy. You asked what it was like. I mean, I, my focus was my business and uh, I would go to a couple of games a year. I'd go to a couple of Citadel games a year, but I, I just wasn't a, a football junkie. I've always pulled for whoever employed him. Right. Yes. Yeah. Brothers do, um, you know, and the Citadel, that was my two teams and, uh, and Georgia, I pulled for Georgia because my friends here in Atlanta, they're too distraught when they're awful when they get beat fortunately they've been happy for a couple of years but you know the business of football i've always known it to be brutal um the realities are exactly what people assume they are and more i would say i would just ask that the fairness uh of of the treatment of all the folks um would be a little better so yeah it's a tough business but um you know there's a lot of great there's a lot of great fans out there there's a lot of great boosters out there there's a lot of great coaches out there and there's awful of all those same categories. Right. But, you know, I would just say that, um, you know, I, let's, we should all take this time to be grateful or if you're involved in this business and you are, you, you touch on it. Yours is so much more cerebral and, and interesting and from my perspective. Like I love the one that you and your buddy, was it Walden? What's his name? What's the, yeah. Walden Rodenberg. Walden. Yeah. Um, just, I just so thoroughly enjoyed that. You guys get off one. I mean, it's fantastic. But, you know, I, I just wish we had take this time to be grateful of how the, everybody who t- took this business to where it is today and then move on. Right. And forgive the people. And I'll, I'm going to throw Jeremy Pruitt in there. I'm going to throw Brian Niedermeyer in there. I'm going to throw uh, old Harbaugh in there. Right. He's going to set out four meaningless games. whoop de doo But the reality of it is, as you know, and I've told you this, there's nothing any of those guys have done that every single coach in the SEC and elsewhere hasn't done and doesn't do on a daily basis. So cut it out, yeah, cut it off. You know, let's come up with some object, use my auditing, you know, forensic accounting word, objective, verifiable truth, right? Where's the objective, verifiable standard we can all apply to each other. And let's live with that. And, you know, forgive these guys, they, 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 you know, none of them are as bad as the worst thing they've ever done. Just like none of the athletes are. Um, so I wish the business would catch up on that side versus all the punitive punishments. I get there's a, 
there's a whole lot of um, pay for attend and pay for play and influence and advantages sought and taken and enough stuff like that. But it's for everybody. Nobody's done. Jeremy Pruitt's done absolutely nothing, anything more than everybody else has done. So I get I get a little sick of that. But, you know, we'll see where the future holds. I'd like to hear the word amnesty and, and some people who have a little graciousness in their mindset. A hundred percent. I could not agree more. And just to give the listeners a little bit of context, your brother Lance ran into a, I would say, call it a minor NCAA violation in Alabama. And I don't want to go into too much detail into it because you're not at liberty sure. to discuss it. But like what level was level two show cause? I mean, this is all Google information out for a year. He actually catches on with Lane Kiffin at FAU. But what you're talking about is probably, I mean, you're on the right podcast for this. The Ole Miss fan, uh, the NCAA, they are sure. well versed and all that. Uh, Absolutely. I'm talking about the hotel room in Covington, Kentucky in 2016. I was like, this is just all a sham. This is just all a joke. This is all uh, a funny. But the weird piece about it is, is like you mentioned the business and the industry as a whole. They've moved past that. They're limited by the incompetent state in which they're governed. Like they're limited by the incompetent governing body. Like everyone in the industry, nobody gives a shit. It's what they're governed by. Who's seemingly been rendered toothless. And I'll just kick it back to you this way. I never thought Ole Miss would be the last major college football program, quote unquote, hammered by the NCAA. But more and more, it's shaping up to be the case because I wouldn't call what happened to Tennessee getting hammered by any stretch. It, it was it was well conceived and it was well managed, right? I, I think some of the new rules where it says they won't punish the, the current players and staff and the school for for transgressions of prior staffs, I'm good with that philosophy. Uh, you know, I, I would just amend it and add a couple of more to it. But yeah, I'm fine with that. I think uh, you know they have a lot of to thank Commissioner Sankey for. He did an excellent job to help them get that and not get the ban because the bowl ban, as you know, has so many consequential. It's a killer. Uh, it's a killer, right? I mean, in this day and age, it's a big deal. Um, so, you know, the business of it, I, let's bring up the Knight Commission. They just published this, right? This pat in 2023. They expect $600 million to be distributed for, to, to, to 130 something football programs, right? In 2027, they forecast that number to be 2 billion. 2 billion. Good Lord. So from 600 to 2 billion in four years. Talk about inflation. We should all be so lucky to have that kind of inflation, right? But their whole thesis, it was really interesting to see how they broke it down. They had obviously some angles in there political more political than, than anything and i get it i'm all for taking care of the athletes <clears throat> us i'll call it um and but it was interesting they their thing was that the totality of the cost of the 11 coaches was going to surpass if they did nothing was going to surpass the total of all of the athletes at the school they say they project that by 2030 and the way it's going the cost for the coaches on their Grade eight, you know, their projected year of year growth would exceed the total cost for to all the athletes and everyone. How can we let this continue? We need to pay, we need to compensate. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, there's obviously the, you know, a lot of committees and a lot of talks going on uh, to try to resolve that, but we'll see. You played college football. You're well-versed, maybe more so in some ways than you wanted to be in kind of the inner workings of how that works. And we're in this great kind of changing period where really the plate tectonics of college football is just kind of changing. Like the, it's a different world than we lived in a year ago. And I don't know when that settles out, but where do you think, I don't know if you have thoughts on this at all, but where do you think it's headed? Because I had a guy on 
in December. He was an NIL lawyer. He was kind of one of the guys at the root of the whole Austin ruling and the whole NCAA mm -hmm. video game. Yeah. And very smart guy. And I read a lot of blog posts he wrote in the late 20 teens. And he, to the guy's credit, his name's Jason Belzer. He called the whole thing. He's basically, he was saying collective in the word 2015, where I was like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Cause I'd never heard of that. And he was basically like, look, this is leading to a revenue sharing model. There will probably be people that go to prison for money laundering with these collectives, but this is all basically leading to them being some version of employees. What are your thoughts in the next five years in college football and how that will work? Wow. Maybe they'll be like, uh, live. How about live? Live. Yeah. I mean, this <laughs> there's salary, no real I market. Mean, you, you just get a share well, of money pull from all kind of, I mean, sources of revenue, right? I mean, will advertising fail as a model? Let's hope not right for your business. Right. I mean, yeah, will advertising fail and what that undermines all of this. I mean, at some point, will there be a softening in how people do this? Will there be a more of a direct thing? It's, it's hard to project, man. I mean, yeah, they actually had the NLRB case that's out there. I don't think anybody wants to show up in front of um, the, the 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 Supreme Court again. Austin, you know, that 17 page ruling, I'd encourage everybody to read it. It's fascinating um, what Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh really laid it to him in his five page five page concurrence. So, I, you know, I don't know, but I do. Th I do think the money will continue. I think that, um, you know, the psychographics of this, it's a beautiful sport. Right. Um, it's a it's. Um, I'd love it if everybody was still motivated to have the, the focus on academics, right? Maybe that, maybe that, maybe we're outgrowing that. But here's the thing: I was just thinking about this today, Brian. Was that my brothers told me this many times for many years? He said, "Scott, for many of these kids, this is the best four years of their life. It's the best four years of their life." Hey, a lot of kids that went to college can say that, right? Pretty fabulous time, but you know, hopefully, it's a transformational time, and it just takes you, it equips you to go on to do some other things. Uh, life's not easy. We know that. But for a lot of these kids, similar to some of my kids, not most, I gave you my kind of roster of my teammates, how well they've done. But I think about it now, all these kids are getting paid something, right? Total cost of attendance, Pell, Austin money, now minimum payments, right? This money's being, you know, I could, without saying university, uh, very prominent, <laughs> you know, his coach has told his collective, I want every kid to get $6,000 a month. The good ones are going to get $15,000 a month. And a few will make over a million that we call it marketing their image, right? That's what it takes to keep them. So be it. But that's the that's the model, right? There's a lot of people in this world that don't make that much money, right? And there are a lot of college athletes that graduate that never make that amount of money. So you talk about the best four years of their life. I hope we don't do something that takes the eye off the ball on the critical importance of the academics, because that is the great enabler. That's the great equalizer. And if you sit there and think that this is all going to happen and it all comes easy, boy, are we teaching the wrong message, right? And it's not, yeah, we're, we're, we're making your lives better. You can help your family. We all needed it. You know, none of, most football players don't come from anything. We didn't. Most of these kids don't. And it's great to be able to help your family. But guess what? The day you get out, the, the last snap you take, that's going away. And you better have developed some some skills and some mindset to get you back there and more or else you're going to be you talk about the mental health issues of where the chair gets pulled out from under you. I see it in the NFL Players Association all the time, the despair when they used they were, you know, I call it the fallen prom king, queen or king syndrome. And it's awful. And I hope we're not setting these kids up for that. And I hope, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. College of football is phenomenal college athletics. They're doing a ton for these kids, a ton. And that's a great thing. 
I just hope we can equip them with life skills, financial skills, you know, monetizable skills beyond, you know, whatever sport they play. We, and I know that's the goal we're trying in uh, all these committees are trying, but I could see where this has a, an unintended reverse consequence where people get thinking, this is just the way life is. People have me money for playing this. I'm cool. I got it. No, it's going to go away on your last snap. That's always been true for NFL players, but now we're talking about college kids. This is not life. This is not the real world, you know? So I, I, I was just thinking how that could be a, an unintended consequence if we're not careful. I think that's incredibly well said. And it, it made me think of something else too, is I don't pretend to know every detail of your college career. I found a decent bit on the internet. You need to get your YouTube film up. I don't know if you can go back to the eighties and just upload and beg. I was smashing guys, I but you were a late bloomer. You may, you had a cup of tea in an NFL camp. If the, this is also coinciding with them having a freer range of movement than they've ever had with the one time free transfer. And let's be honest, if you graduate, mm -hmm. you basically get a second one and that's been easier than ever. Yeah. Would that have affected your career? Would you ever thought, have you ever thought about the fact, could I have gone to a bigger school after I had immediate success? Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, I went to my, I played my fifth year. I went to graduate school, right? I graduated in four. I went and was taking MBA. I was working on my MBA my fifth year. Um, I probably would have gone somewhere else for my fifth year. Right. I mean, just to give I, it a try. I, I, yeah. I mean, at that point, I mean, we played Clemson. I played Harris Barton at North Carolina, you know, I, you know, to, I'm not tooting my horn, but, uh, you know, I had 20 something tackles in North Carolina. That's because we were killing us. But actually, we played them pretty well. Clemson, we played them well. John Phillips was the All-American guard. Thought he was average. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I could compete. I mean, there's no doubt, no question in my mind, I could have played in the SEC as my senior, my fifth year. There's no doubt. I'd have been a better guard, offensive guard, but as a defensive lineman, I could have played is my belief. Last thing I have for you, we were talking about your brother, Lance, and yeah. one of the things that was fascinating to me when I was learning the business of college football, and it kind of falls in line with everything we were talking about, is the money in it. And I thought, you know, as your average fan being a freshman in college or senior in high school, it's like, oh, everybody wants to be a head coach, but you can make an incredible living never even desiring or sniffing to be a head coach. And I think your brother is a great example of that. Was that surprising to you as a guy who played college football in the 1980s where it's like, no, there are guys that never really never want to be head coaches or never even sniff that that make incredible livings in college football. Was that surprising to you as you followed his career? Yeah, let me answer that in a second. I want to edit what I said. I could have played SEC football back then. I could have played <laughs> SEC football now. Let me, let me <laughs> clarify that, okay? Big, big difference. Uh, for my brother and coaches, no, I mean, hey, back then, I always call it the bike shorts crowd. You're too young to know this, but bike used to make these shorts with like a two-inch waistband, and all okay. the coaches wore them, right? They, I mean, I mean, without being too crude, people called them nut huggers. I mean, they were just they were the most comfortable thing in the world where everybody wore them. And, coach, and coaches made 25, 30 grand, right? But they loved what they did. They, they the You know, Steve Spurrier, first coach to make a million bucks at Florida, right? So nobody expected the income side of it. Uh, those, those guys earn every penny they made. I mean, $10, $11 million on a not-for-profit. I have a little bit of a philosophical discussion there, but in terms of the effort they put in, the results they achieved, the net – finance guy, the net benefit they create that accrues to their institutions for success. Nick Saban's obviously there. George, you look at Georgia's, um, you know, balance sheet that since Kirby's gotten there, it's improved considerably. So for have facilities and everything else in the life of the athletes, um, as long as they'll let you, how about if I say it that way, my brother should absolutely be a defense coordinator in the sec. Um, he had his, he had his transgressions. Nobody's tougher on my brother than I am. I'm his biggest critic. 
but he's my brother and there's nobody I won't fight and uh, no legal battle I won't fight to take it, you know, to protect him and look out for his interests. So as long as they'll let you, I would throw that into Bo Davis. I'd throw that into Hugh Freeze. I'd throw that to Jeremy Pruitt and all the people who judge those guys really harshly. Because I'll assure you, if you pull the microscope out, you don't have to look far for people a lot worse than them who do a lot more in, love. in their eyes, right? I don't call it cheating. I call it doing your job because that is the job, period. And especially these young kids that get caught up in it, the Jay Grams of the world, whoever, Jimbo Fisher. Um, you know, I, I have a really strong opinion on that. And I think that men who work their ass off for three decades should be given leeway to do what they've earned the right to do, uh, as long as you're good enough. If you can do it, you can do it. Because um, there's nobody bringing any harm to anything. I mean, they're not hurting. They're, 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 these men, for the most part, sacrifice so much. As I call it, they go into these dens of despair. And this is not everybody. This is not universal. But the things I've written about my own personal writings is that they go into these, nobody can understand the dens of despair they go into and, you know, how that affects them emotionally, the relationships they build lifelong relationships with these kids. And, um, you know, I just think a forgiveness, a little forgiveness goes a long way in that judgment. I mean, it's almost as if it's a kangaroo court that has no basis in merit and their crime is helping kids get it a better immediate future. What a, what a shame. <laughs> what a shame. It is. It punish it them is. heavily. But, you know, the great thing is it's changed now. There is a mechanism, right? They're going to change nil. They're going to change collectives, right? It, it, the IRS may, um, the NLRB may, you know, sheer forces of economics may, you know, donor um, kind of fatigue may, you know. But, yeah, I mean, let's just let's just let's let bygones be bygones because today I can go get any kid I want paid however I want, right? You know, send me your link, send me your bio sheet. That's an that's an asset I'm transacting with you. I'm this guy's gonna pay you for that because he's gonna put it on his website. And that's substance of value. Who's gonna judge that? I'll assure you they won't win that in the, in the Supreme Court when it gets challenged. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of models to to come. There's legislation to come. Who knows? But I'm pro coach, I'm pro player, I'm pro, pro football, I'm pro university. Um, you know, I just uh I, I, you know, I just want to stand up. Hey, stand up for those who can't, because I'll assure you the coaches can't stand up for themselves. That sounds a perverse and people go, what are you talking about? Coaches can't stand up for themselves in this environment at all. They're the, they're the least thought of. Yes, they get paid the most and no, nobody needs to have any sympathy for them. They know what they're signing up for, but they have very little power when it comes down to the institutional control over their livelihoods in many instances. Last, last thing I have for you, and I hate to do the NCAA bidding here, but I think it's the perfect question to wrap up with as we joked about the commercial at the top. As much work as you put in to become a Citadel football player and as successful as you have been in business and your career speaks for itself, how different do you think it would have been had you not had the opportunity to be a Citadel football player? I'd be a meat cutter, I think. My dad was a butcher. <laughs> My dad was a butcher. Uh, we grew up, you know, two miles from the Ford plant, which doesn't exist anymore. There's now a Porsche road track there. Um, so, you know, 30% uh, of our kids' dads worked at the Ford plant. Many of them worked on the ramps at Delta or Eastern Airlines. You know, something like that, right? It's it's not an uncommon story for a lot of football players. Um, the NCAA offers a great – or excuse me, college football offers a great thing. The NCAA is to be determined what that's going to become. That's up to them. Uh and others, but um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great vehicle. If you're smart enough, the, the thing I, when I go back and speak to the Citadel once a year, players for the steak night, this is so funny. I sponsor 
each year we don't get the budget right so they come to former players to sponsor steak night on monday night after each game so every player you know if you they, if you sign up for so i do a one game a year buy stakes for all the players i don't think it's an ncla really an idea hopefully it's not a recruiting violation maybe that's an advantage i don't know but anyway none of those we, nerds are listening to this i think and i and i tell them i tell them you know i tell them some of the same themes but it's you know about you know the relationships and stuff but it's the moment in time that is here and how do you make the most of it and move forward and don't look back on this and miss the opportunity. Cause you're either going to use it or you're going to waste it. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, and I think about all these kids. I, I love, uh, they're great kids. There are bad apples everywhere, but these, most of these kids are really great kids and it's transformational for them and their families. If they can make it. Um, I just hope we're doing the right thing. And uh, I know the coaches try hard. I know the schools do everything in their power to bend over backwards to support these kids. Not when they're bad. I'm not here to forgive the bad because if you make bad choices and certainly if you harm somebody else, I have zero sympathy for you. But, you know, um, it's a great program, great sport. Um, I think I lost your original question in that. But, um, dude, you do a great job of evoking people's, in my case, emotions that I haven't thought about in a long time. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. Oh, man, I appreciate it. He is Scott Thompson. You know, my boss told me this would be a great interview. It exceeded all expectations, which if you know Rob Vincent, that's hard to do because he will put uh, often unreasonable expectations on you. I really appreciate the time. This has been tremendous, and we'll have to do this again sometime. Brian, he's going to have a tough time holding on to you, man. He's gonna <laughs> no, have I'm not going time. anywhere. I love the guy to death. I'm going to negotiate your ownership in the next entrepreneurial venture, okay? So it's coming. That's what I'll do. You can become my agent. You can play hardball with Rob. He doesn't know what's coming with him. That's well, what we'll do next. It's little William. But anyway, thank you, Brian. I enjoyed it. Best of luck to you, buddy. Absolutely. That'll do it for our show today. I appreciate you tuning into this podcast. As always, we will have probably another weekend edition of the Rippy Rights podcast as uh, we're still in the last week or so of the summer schedule. Had a couple of uh, potential player interviews get moved around. So probably throw something out this weekend, then uh, start turning the attention to football next week. So looking forward to it. Thanks for the support as always. And uh, we'll holler at you here soon.